All right, to fans of the podcast, we have something very special this week. We uh, were going to have a bye week for the uh, American Fourth of July holiday, but instead uh, we're going to give Mark a week off, and I have the privilege of sitting here with uh, an old and dear friend who is in the United States for the first time in many, many years, Stefan Hammond, one of the world's foremost experts on Hong Kong film, on on the history of Hong Kong film and martial arts films, uh, whose books are effectively considered the quintessential primers on Hong Kong film, that is uh, Sex and Zen and a Bullet in the Head, and of course Hollywood East, which I was privileged to contribute to. Um, Stefan, the last time I saw you in the flesh was the the month of the handover in, in 1997, so it's been a while. It's been a while, Wade. Uh, how do I live up to that uh, introduction? But, uh, you know, welcome to all the uh, listeners of your podcast. It's great to be here in Los Angeles, and uh, it's a privilege to be here on the show. Um, yeah, uh, if you know my book, Sex and Zen, the Bolt in the Head, was co-written with Mike Wilkins. That came out in 96. Hollywood East, to which Wade wrote an amazing chapter on uh, Jet Li that covered a lot of the ground that that I really couldn't or already had covered. And uh, thanks again, Wade, for doing my that. My privilege. Um, and I, I live in Hong Kong and have for a considerable period of time. Uh, since writing the books, I've... I've you know, hung around the industry, learned a lot of stories about, uh, interviewed a lot of Hong Kong filmmakers, actors, directors, uh, etc. You've on done set. a lot of DVD commentaries. I've done a few. Uh, yeah, I've done some for, uh, well, we'll get into this later, but basically the Shaw Brothers Library, mm-hmm. which was locked up for a long time, uh, became available and started coming out on DVD in 2002. So I, I was frankly privileged to do, to do some of those audio commentaries. Uh, I did one with Paul Fonaroff, who's um, another longtime Hong Kong resident and expert on Hong Kong films. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just it's such a rich history, and there's so much. Uh, well, let's 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 get into some of that history. You know, the the fans of the podcast who for years have, have heard me go off on Hong Kong films whenever they come around, and it is obviously a passion of yours, a passion of mine, a passion for a lot of us who have always fallen in love with these films from the outside in. You know, it's often people think it's strange America, Hollywood, the the center of movies, and yet many of us have a passion for a film industry beyond our shores. Could you could you talk just? I mean, you you bring that unique perspective because you are a Westerner who lives there and who does have that perspective and you're in the belly of the beast as it were give us a sense when when did all of this begin when do movies in hong kong start oh okay well uh if you want to go back uh to the to the beginning the the first film ever shot in hong kong was in 1909 so we're really talking the edison silent film era you know there there were things there's some documentaries if you you search on youtube you can actually find a, a short documentary silent that was shot in, I think, 1934 or something. Uh, a few things. But but in the 20s and 30s, it wasn't Hong Kong that was the center of the Asian film world in terms of international um, appeal. It was, of course, the international city of Shanghai, which in the 20s and 30s had the French concession, had a lot, did a lot of international trade. And that was, you know, during the golden years of Hollywood, you know, what we think of as you know, the whole silence and then going to sound. 20s and 30s 20s and 40s and, 30s, and then yeah. 40s. Uh, uh, yeah, well, in Shanghai, it didn't 
quite get into the 40s. And the, the reason is the, the Japanese the war. invasion. And, yeah. yeah, the Sino-Japanese War. Uh, but in the 20s and 30s, you know, it was as glamorous as Hollywood. That's where the starlets were. They made films. You know, they did um, uh, advertisements. You know, they, they were the celebrities of the day. Just very similar to Hollywood at that time. I mean, Shanghai. Um, and, of course, the war completely uh, changed that. They, they tried to keep making films even under Japanese occupation. It really was such, it's like in their DNA. But, of course, eventually they had to give that up. Then it became the PRC, and then sort of became politically incorrect to make uh, certain films. But what it, what it happened is that uh, there was a market for Asian films, which was primarily Chinese. Uh, and, of course, you've heard of the Shaw Brothers. There were four originally. They were originally textile merchants. Uh, uh, and they were sort of searching around... Um, greater China for a place where they could produce films. The reason is that they had a distribution network in Southeast Asia. So once, you know, the war cleared up, everything cleared up in the late 40s, they were basically um, distributing and exhibiting films at cinemas in Southeast Asia, Malaysia, Singapore, etc. And they weren't happy with the quality of films that they were getting. So they decided to get into production. So they went to the Hong Kong government, at that time it was a British crown colony, and said, we need a lot of space to build a, a film studio. So out in Clearwater Bay, which if you know Hong Kong, is right out in the sticks, it's in the new territories, very far from the, the center, and in you know the 1950s, this land was incredibly cheap. Uh, the Hong Kong government said, fine, you can build it. So they built the Shaw Brothers lot. I mean, the, the literal dream factory for decades afterwards. And this was about what year? Uh, this would have been in the 50s. I mean, it, it's kind of hard to track what when the Shaw Brothers really started rolling in production. They had to build the facilities and then start going. But by the time of, let's say, 1960, I generally dated from 1960. In 1960, they had stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they made a film called The Enchanting Shadow. Now, if you know Choi Hark's 1987 film, A Chinese Ghost Story, which I'm sure many of mm. your listeners know, yeah. The Enchanting Shadow, the Chinese characters are identical. Interesting. It is actually the same film. And you can get this on DVD now, so I was lucky enough to see it in the big screen at the Hong Kong Film Festival some time ago, but you can get this on DVD. And... The, uh, so I sort of market, you know, the 50s stuff, yeah, but when you get into the 60s, you get Shaw's and you get their main competitor, which was Cafe, uh, also known as MPG&I for whatever reason. But basically, Shaw's and Cafe were sort of the, the two things. So during the, the 60s, when there was a lot of, you know, young people, and there, there was no TV in Hong Kong until 67, the, the movies ruled. So the fans were like either in the Cafe camp or the Shaw's camp. Mm. And, you know, it was kind of like A versus B, which that dichotomy still exists. Did, did, did Cafe build a studio, though? Uh, I'm, I'm not as familiar. I believe they had some production. Because I'm not at all familiar with the Cafe stuff. Well, there were other studios, but they were smaller. Cafe, what Cafe did is, is they had their star, Grace Chang, mm-hmm. and they had various, uh, in fact, Wong Tin Lam, who's the father of Wong Jing, 
who okay. uh, many of your listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with in the, in the modern age. Yeah. Director of, of uh, City Hunter and the Jackie Chan and, you know, filmography, eight, among many, many others. 800 other films. Yeah. Anyway, uh, he, uh, he worked... He worked with them, and uh, you can get some of these films now on DVD with English subtitles, which I consider amazing. I think they're real treasures. But so, so the the, Hong, the modern Hong Kong film industry as we know it, the the roots of because uh, I mean I, you know we've all seen some of those old black and white uh, martial arts films where it's all one take. You know, some of them are, are extras on uh, on some of the Drunken Master uh, DVDs and stuff where it's it's very, very rudimentary martial arts. And that stuff, I guess, is 1930s. Yeah, I mean, the the real, you know, the granddaddy of them all yeah. is, uh, of course, the Wong Fei Hung films. Yeah. And they had this actor Kwon Ta King. That, that's I'm the sure stuff. You yeah. know, and he literally, I'm not making this up, made 99 feature films starring himself as Wong Fei Hung. The first one I think was in 49. Wow. So again, this is mostly post war. The war really put a threw a monkey wrench in film production. But once they started, yeah, 49 was the first Wong Fei Hung film, and basically, yeah, it was like point a camera at the guys who are just doing their martial arts stuff. It really was very little filmmaking technique, but of course these things evolve. No ed, no editing, no wire work, none of those yeah. things that we associate with, with, yeah, with the and, genre. Yeah, and the stories thing. are very simple. Wong Fei Hung is the good guy, he beats the bad guy, yeah. and you know, then you come back the next week and, and see it again. Uh, and yeah, some of those old black and white films, and the, there's a lot of Chinese opera, uh, most of them, you, you know, you really can't find them subtitled. Uh, so while they, yeah, it's it's of course, led to some of the films with Jet Li in the 1990s, mm-hmm. playing Wong Fei Hung. I, I sort of, you know, don't pay. I, I don't pay that much attention to Hong Kong films before the, Shaws. the early 60s. And, yeah. and the thing about Shaw Brothers that I think is very important to understand: yes, there was Cafe. Yes, these these teens would sort of, you know, uh, duel over who was the best screen idol or whatever. But everything started with Shaw's. Uh, Everybody, including Raymond Chow, who founded Golden Harvest, started with Shaw's. John Wu uh, was assistant director to Chang Che, started with Shaw's. Yeah. La Galang, uh, to use his Cantonese name, who unfortunately passed away this week, uh, started with Shaw's. He was the action director for Chang Che. Yeah. You know, who was really, it's like Chang was kind of the uh, interesting story about Chang. Uh, he was a reviewer. For hmm. a newspaper, and he wrote some critical reviews in the 1960s of Shaw Brothers films. So Run Run Shaw, who's a very shrewd individual, and who is now a hundred and how old is he? Now? Nobody knows exactly <laughs> how old he is. They, they, they sort of celebrated his hundredth birthday. They sort of know the year, okay, but yeah. nobody really knows what what day he was born. There's it's a little conflicting, but. Now, I don't know, I always say he'll outlive us all. He's like 105 or something. He is, yes. He's, he's, uh, you know, but uh, until really 10 years ago, he would go to the office every day to work. Mm. He's a fascinating uh, individual and also a philanthropist. There's the Run Run Shaw Prize. There's the Shaw Building at Hong Kong University. Uh, So, and and this is, uh, I would say, characteristic of some Chinese tycoons is when they make their wealth, they don't buy a yacht or something, they'll actually help to form a university. Or, yeah, they kick know. it back. Yeah, they'll support education, which is, uh, I think, interesting. But anyway, he Run Run Shaw invited Che to the studios and took him on a tour around because 
he was reading this negative coverage that uh, you know Chang was writing, and at some point, you know, and this may be apocryphal, but he, he turned to Chang says, "Well, you know, you really criticized our last three releases. You think you can make a better film?" And Chang said, "Yes, I can." <laughs> because he he was a he was a lyricist and a musician. Uh, he he was had an artistic temperament as well as writing, and all this stuff. And he you know had sufficient hubris to think that he could direct a better film. So um, Ron Ron said, "Well, you're on," uh, and you know literally history was born. Chang joined and directed I don't know how many films. At uh, well, Shaw Brothers and and films which we should point out too. I mean, Chang is one of uh, Quentin Tarantino's favorite directors. Yeah, I think. And there are huge yeah. huge chunks of the Kill Bill films that are that are inspired by uh, and Kill Bill One mainly that are inspired by Chang Che. Yeah, I, I would so. say among Asian directors, Asian, pan Asian. You're talking Japanese directors, whatever. I think if you're going to make a a list of the top whatever ten twenty, you know, whatever, uh, Chang Chang Che has to be on there. He he is seminal. Yeah, both in in the films he directed and the actors that you know he helped uh, um, you know create their careers and helped their their skills evolve but also in terms of bringing people like John Woo Lao Galung you know uh, all of these people and who now continue you know to have careers I mean John Woo is probably the most successful uh, Hong Kong guy to make it in Hollywood. What what I find so fascinating about the Shaws is that it, it Hong Kong and Hollywood have this one thing in common that's different from all the other industries in the world. If you look at the evolution of the German or the French or the British or the Russian or the Italian film industries, um, they're all director driven. You you don't go to a point in their histories and say, well, what was the birth? Well, the birth was you know Fritz Lang, or the birth was uh, whatever it might be. You, you you always have a director that you you can you can never name the producers. But with a, with the American film industry, it begins with. Uh, Carl Lemley and Louis B. Mayer and Sam Goldman and Jack Warner and the same thing in Hong Kong it, it's what we understand that industry to be it begins with the Shaws yeah. is that a fair, a fair thing to say? I, I believe so and many people especially in the you know when Hong Kong films first started being discovered by the West you know in, in large measure by other than say martial arts students uh, people would say yeah they're using the Hollywood studio system that we had decades ago uh, to do that and yes I mean Shaw Brothers was very much you know the proverbial dream factory. Uh, the uh, the stars were lived in a dormitory. Uh, Clearwater Bay was very distant from you know so and, and they were working all the time. So stars, I mean it's almost Dickensian. I'm not saying that this tradition should be continued. I'm serious. <laughs> I'm serious about this. But at the time, you have to realize that Hong Kong was a third world place. You know, yeah. Medical care. And on all these things, you know, there wasn't enough housing after the war and all of this. To, to actually be a film star, you know, where, wherever you came from, a lot of these stars came from Taiwan, uh, but wherever you came from, the fact that you could make a living as a film star was, was really like winning the lottery. It, it was astonishing. So if they say, well, you're going to live in a dormitory and you're basically not going to sleep that much and you're not going to have any choice over which director you work with that was all fine um, what happened is and, and you're right in that it, it was much more of a studio system yeah. and even when you get later on you get to Golden Harvest you get to Raymond Chow it still was again the studio 
uh, and the producers that were more important than um, you know later on the stars did become important but yeah in, in those early times yeah it, it was Shaw's okay Shaw's was the brand that you know amazing logo uh, you know that began all these films and, and they and they built I mean they they built their studio in I mean Clearwater Bay yes. right was where it was which is removed from everywhere else so it's a you could almost even draw a parallel there that as the studios came to California because there was land and space and you could create westerns in these frontier environments they basically did much the same thing they went to that part of the island much where the that same, facilitated that there, there is one big difference which is that they could build sets right like, yeah, when I see and especially now that a lot a lot of these Shaw Brothers films are coming out on DVD. You can see them more and more. I was fortunate enough to see some of them in the in the big screen first run in, in the early 80s, but uh, uh, that's that's a different story and one that we'll probably tell in a yeah. bit. But uh, uh, yeah, you know they they could create a set. In other words, if they wanted to do a fantasy thing, they had a cave, right? They could light it any way they wanted to. You know, Chang Che did a film in '78 called. Heaven and Hell, which is supernatural. You know, people don't associate Chang Che. He did Five Venoms, of course, and he did all this stuff. But in '78, after he made Five Venoms, which was a huge hit, uh, you know, the Venoms team went on to do other things, and he took a few of them and put them literally in the set of Hell. Hmm. But he could do that simply because Shaw's had a cave, you know, which you could light any way you wanted to, right. and he just would, you know, get his stars in, in, and they were probably shooting several films at the same time, so, you know, at night when they weren't shooting, whatever. So some of the exteriors in the Shaw Brothers films, you, you will see them, they're basically, like, uh, very spare, very rural, there's some coastline and stuff, but that's all, like, just down the hill from Clearwater Bay. Yeah. You know, it's it, it was all there, and... Uh, so that, in a sense, was different, in that they really had a self-contained thing. But the one thing they were really missing was a post-production. Oddly enough, post-production was sometimes outsourced to, to other countries, but uh, basically, you know, the Dream Factory, the Generation Machine, the Shaw's Generation Machine for not only films, but eventually talent, and talent, which is still creating new films, um, all came about. Uh, would, you probably ask what happened to Shaw Brothers, right? Uh, what happened is that in the mid-80s, they were still making films up until about 85, And all kinds of films, we should point out, too. Oh, yes. Not just martial arts films. There were musicals and comedies and everything in there, too. Well, okay, let me go with 86 and we'll go yeah, back in time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so basically in 86, uh, you know, as I said, Hong Kong did not have television until 67. Which is fascinating. Yeah, it is. Because that's how people like John Woo got their education. It's like... You know, you're living in a small place, you don't have air conditioning, you don't have money, but for five cents Hong Kong, you can go to the movies. So he would go and he would see Samurai films, he'd see Jean-Pierre Melville films, he'd see Hollywood films, Peck and Paw, whatever. So that's, you know, that was John Woo's film school education, and many other people too. But, yeah, no TV until 67. By the time the mid-80s came along, Hong Kong had become sufficiently wealthy that People own television sets. And Shaw's sort of went, you know, if we just do TV production, we don't have to do discrete feature films, right? We can take our stars and do TV series and the, um, 
you know, through their, uh, which continues today, TVB, their, uh, yeah. uh, one of the two um, uh, terrestrial broadcast uh, networks in, in Hong Kong, they simply would do TV series. So they, it's a strictly financial decision. Interesting. They will tell you that, oh, we never stopped making movies, but they sort of went from making a couple hundred a year or whatever. Um, don't quote me on that. I would have to, have to research yeah. how many films they were making at that time, but to like maybe six. You know? Wow. So they'll tell you that they never stopped, which is true, but they, they slowed down considerably, and that created the new wave of... Uh, Hong Kong films with Char Hark Film Workshop and things. Well, like obviously, that. gave Raymond Chow a, a big opening as well. Uh, it did, except that um, Raymond, basically Bruce Lee, who requires no introduction, and born in the U.S., he starred in uh, the Green Hornet TV show. He sort of went over to Shaw's, but they they didn't like him there. Shaw's liked their stars compliant, yeah, and Bruce was very sort of independently minded. Uh, Raymond Chow, who like just about everybody in the Hong Kong film industry at a certain age, worked for Shaw Brothers, split off and formed this company, Golden Harvest. They didn't have much success. But when Lee was not signed by Shaw's, uh, Raymond Chow said, you know, this guy's got talent. Uh, early yeah. 70s, snapped him up, took him to Thailand, shot a film, and it just went boffo in uh, Hong Kong. Then somehow, and I, you probably know this better than I, he got picked up in the U.S. and, uh, you know, made Enter the Dragon. Well, Enter the Dragon, which was uh, produced by Fred Weintraub, who actually, who, you know, Mark uh, grew up with. Mark and I know Fred Weintraub's son mm. quite well. So we, you know, we have a, and Weintraub also tried to do the same thing with Jackie Chan when they made uh, the, uh, Big Brawl, the Big Brawl, Creek, yeah. which was also known as Battle Creek Brawl right. in some places. And, and that didn't quite pan out so well because, you know, it, it, it wasn't letting Jackie be Jackie. But uh, the funny thing to me is always that Enter the Dragon is really not by any means Bruce Lee's best film, or does it show his best work? But it's the one that everyone remembers. Yeah, and you know, partly because, uh, well, I don't know why. I mean, the thing about Bruce Lee, uh, you know, of course I respect him; he, he's fabulous. But it's kind of like the guy made four films. Yeah. And when you think about people like Chang Che and Lao Galong, you know, people yeah. people that made like dozens of films and had multi-decade careers and yeah. really and worked in different genres sometimes uh, and I guess backing up on something that you said and this this is something I did very much with the first book uh, which came out in 1996 and was the first English language book on Hong Kong films. it was and it was I, it surprised everyone that, you know myself and Mike included the publisher yeah. was shocked the print run sold out before it was released. They had to start reprinting before it was even released. It's fantastic. Pre-orders. Uh, here, uh, Golden Apple Books, which I don't know if it's still around, but in Melrose, mm-hmm. uh, Paul Nurban, who worked there, he told me they were selling five copies a day. Yeah. People were just going, oh my gosh, Hong Kong film book, because they'd become popular. Yeah. You know? And uh, a year later, there was like five Jackie Chan books or whatever. But here's the point. Um, of course, the bread and butter of Hong Kong has always been martial arts films. But by the time you get to the mid-90s, when Rim Films was showing things in cinemas, and that actually was critical because people were meeting each other at the cinema. They'd show double features, so you knew there was more than one genre, and it'd be one night a week, most places. Unfortunately, here in L.A., the new art had to 
commit to seven day runs, so there wasn't a place to do it. But San Francisco, where I was living, UC Berkeley, you know, this, this campus Thursday night was Hong Kong Film Night. Yeah. And I would meet these people who just were completely jazzed on Hong Kong film. And what they would do is they'd go every Thursday and they'd see two films. If, if there was a Jackie Chan or a John Woo film, you'd have to show up 45 minutes early to get a seat. So people would go, they'd see a film and they'd say, oh, I want to see that John Woo film again. They'd bring their friends. And, you know, this really snowballed. But the other thing is that they would talk in the lobby and say, what is going on here? You know, because they're showing comedy, they're showing drama. Uh, but I think the most important thing is that Jackie Chan was doing martial arts and martial arts comedy, oftentimes directed by Sammo Hung. Uh, and John Woo was doing a different kind of thing with A Better Tomorrow, A Better Tomorrow 2, uh, City on Fire, they were doing a Lamb films, things like that. You know, here was this recognizable, really amazing alpha male character who didn't exist in the 17th century. He existed in the present. Yeah. And like the trench coat, the twin Berettas, and all of these, <laughs> you know, this kind of stuff that uh, you could really relate to U.S. crime films, yeah. even film noir, something that you knew, but yet there was this different edge to it. Uh, I think that was the attraction. The now th- th- this all kind of gets this is the, to me the most fascinating transition because the Shaw Brothers movies were things that I kind of discovered later. You know, I grew up uh, early seventies watching a lot of this stuff uh, on uh, Kung Fu Theater, right? Uh, Sunday afternoon television because it was cheap and the local channels here could you know they they picked it up somewhere in television market, and it was always dubbed and people made fun of the dubbing. But um, you know that's where I discovered Master of the Flying Guillotine which our mutual friend Andy Klein and I have done the commentary for twice on DVD. And uh, those were all the non-studio things. Those were like a lot of those, the non-Shaw films. They were the ones that kind of, uh, like Jimmy Wang Yu was one of those guys who started with the Shaws and then kind of went independent. And they tried to make him into the first Bruce Lee. That didn't really work. There is that period, it, mostly the, the, the period in the 1970s, between... Um, when the Shaws really kind of started to downsize and then when we have the beginning of what we consider the, the Hong Kong New Wave, there's that transitional period. I mean, talk a little bit about that because everybody was looking for... Bruce Lee was supposed to be the new guy. He died, and then we're looking for the new Bruce Lee. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, is that... It, it, we sometimes characterize that period as like a dark ages, but it sounds like you're, you're suggesting that a lot of the people that cut their teeth on Shaw were really continuing to hone their craft and kind of getting their getting their their, their they flight were, but speed. The, the thing is that this was basically showing in Hong Kong, yeah. Taiwan, and Southeast Asia, yeah. uh, and the films were subtitled in English because it was a British law. Right? Yeah. They were subtitled and they were subtitled in Chinese. And if you saw it in Malaysia, they would stick Malaysian subs so it'd take up like a half the screen and all this. The the problem is really getting to see it in the U.S. right or in the West, and yeah. I want to get a little personal here and talk about it because it's very similar. You know, I, I grew up in, yeah, late night TV, in black belt theater and all yeah. that ridiculous dubbing. <laughs> so, you know, thank your Kung Fu is pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and the evil laugh and stuff. <laughs> well, you're going to die today. <laughs> right? You know, all of that stuff. Exactly. And, you know, and, and yes, it became sort of a cultural meme, certainly with Bruce Lee, with the, you know, who was... I guess supposed to start in the Kung Fu TV series. Yeah. David Carradine got it. You know, you had that song Kung Fu Fighting and all of this kind of stuff. And uh, 
Of course, these dub films sort of went into grindhouses in uh, the major cities in the U.S. And um, you know, I remember going to Times Square and seeing you know triple feature. But the thing is that it it it, it wasn't really there was no granularity in that time. You know, no one sort of thought, well, there's Hong Kong films and we should follow them. Yeah. You know, it was kind of like, well, you'd see uh, a Hong Kong film dubbed in English and then there'd be a Sunny Chiba film dubbed in English. And, you know, you wouldn't think, well, I'm watching a Hong Kong film, I'm watching a Japanese film. you just think, well, I'm watching guys beating each other up. Right? Yeah. So uh, there was that era. Now, with me personally, I always thought that that's really all there was to it. I saw Five Fingers of Death uh, in a cinema in a, uh, a Midwestern university. And I simply thought, you know, I mean, this, this is just silly, you know, bad dubbing, and people were laughing, and all this kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, of course, Bruce Lee and, and all that, but, I, I, you know, to me, at that age, I was interested in other, other things. What happened is, during this time, theater, cinemas, you know, movie theaters, we call them here in the States, uh, didn't... We ran out of things to show, right? And so they were going to close. But what happened is, I was living in Minneapolis at the time. There's a lot of Asian immigrants, right? And so on Friday nights... In Minneapolis? Yes. Minneapolis is where I... I know wouldn't, would never have imagined. I, it's, it's a, this is why I tell it. I've told this story many times, but it is really remarkable. I had a friend who lived in Detroit. And for three years, she went to this one theater that showed these Shaw Brothers films. Uh, Karen Terrapata, she's written in both my books and we're still in touch and she's absolutely wonderful. And she's the one that told me, look, there's something serious here. There are directors you can track that are doing interesting work. Because she was seeing, the only way to see this stuff was in the cinema. Yeah. And she was the only non-Chinese person in the cinema. People would ask her, you know, what are you doing here? Things like that. The, in 1983, the theater in Detroit closed and Karen was sufficiently motivated to move to Minneapolis because there was a theater in North Minneapolis that was kind of this, you know, slightly derelict uh, thing that probably would have closed except these guys moved in uh, and it was called The Ritz. Hmm. And I was working this kind of high-stress job and Karen, you know, we're obviously friends and she's like, come down and see the Hong Kong films. I'm like, oh, I can't, I'm busy, you know. Finally, one day, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but November 16th, 1983. <laughs> okay, because I found the flyer later uh, when I did the first book. Karen kept a copy. Uh, and I went down to the Ritz. And I saw a film by Chu Yan, or Choi Yun, to use his Cantonese pronunciation, who is one of the stalwart Hong Kong or Shaw Brothers directors. Uh, and your, your listeners may recognize him if you've seen Police Story. Mm -hmm. He's the villain. Yeah. Okay, so if you see a Hong Kong, you see, you see it in Hong Kong, like when he appears, everyone goes, wow, because it's yeah. this director that they all know. But of course, I didn't know anything about that, but I saw this film starring Derek Yi uh, called Descendant of the Sun. And it was this incredible, you know, again, these beautiful, you know, with, with Shaw's, all, every penny they spent, because they didn't pay their people much, and, you know, they, worked, all them, the they worked them hard. Every penny, yeah, the, the, you know, the only thing I can compare it to would be, say, Russ Meyer. The production dollars right. were so high and unexpected. You know, you'd expect in a big budget production, but these were cranked out. However, you know, these beautiful like 
floating gardens and palaces and you know white costumes and gold and you know and at the same time in the same film there were like demons coming out and wizards and people were changing shape and there was loud you know cheap synth effects and cheap optical effects and stuff but the whole story was so fast paced and there was a part of it you know I've always been a big fan of supernatural and horror films as I'm sure many Hong Kong film fans are and there was a part of it that was I could follow it I totally understood it you know it's good versus evil the good wizard and people change shape and and all that but there was another part of it that was so different this came from a different culture that clearly did not care about western mores you know mores if, if, if you will there was it was at the same time so familiar and so foreign and really we actually put that we, we wrote that in the intro you know we've seen and i have seen it happen people seeing their hong kong movie whatever it is for the first time and actually a gland grows inside <laughs> their head starts to vascularize and yeah. grow and you know it's true you see people that you get the hong kong flu now the one thing i want to point out this was a double feature so after I had my mind completely blown by Descendant of the Sun, I saw a second film in a different genre, and I went, oh my gosh, they're doing different. You know, it's like, this is continuing. It's like, I I can't talk to the theater owners. They don't speak English. Nobody else in the theater is, is non-Asian. But yet I can sit here and I can watch this film, and it has English subtitles, and it's the most amazing stuff I've seen. But at that time, at that particular time, they showed trailers, and they showed a trailer for this film right here, The Holy Flame of the Martial, of the martial World. Mm -hmm. And that, actually, that is still one of my favorite completely wacky Sharp Brothers films, but it was kind of this understanding, if you come back next week, we're going to continue. And that, for me, and, that, and to me, you know, it's kind of a long story, but to get back to your original point, is like, you know, what happened? What happened is that you couldn't see these films in the West. You couldn't track them. You couldn't, uh, you know, and this, this continued. So for me, 83, yeah, I, I, got, I got the bug. Kept chasing it, moved to San Francisco, and this kept up. In other words, we couldn't find out who, you know, eventually we learned who Chai and Fat was, people like that. But the few people, including Mike Wilkins, uh, who really were stuck on this stuff, We'd like call each other's answering machines. Well, there's a film with the great star, and it's got the, you know, the actress who was wearing the white overcoat in the film yeah, we saw last yeah. week. We didn't know the names of the actors and actresses. Let there's alone, no Hong Kong movie database or any of those resources. There was no yeah. internet. There was no nothing. I mean, there literally was. We would call each other's answering machines. A couple of crucial questions then before we kind of segue into the, the new wave period. You, you said these films were required to be subtitled, mm. and. Is it entirely possible that we might never have discovered these films? They might never have achieved their global reach if not for that requirement that they be subtitled, that perhaps it would have been too much trouble. There's so many films from China and from other in international industries that no one has ever seen here. India is another good example where they just, it's simply it was never worth it to them to go out and try to sell these films to an English language market. But in this case, is it possible to say that if they hadn't been subtitled, they might never have made it here? Or would they have made it still to the... To the uh, to the, the, the Chinatown theaters. No, I think this, you're absolutely right. The subtitling was crucial. Yeah. Uh, when I think, because now, you know, nowadays you can get all this stuff on DVD and Blu-ray, which is great. 
but I'm actually going through this period where I'm watching like Japanese films from the 60s and 70s. Yeah. And I found out recently, I mean, Japan's output was prodigious. And of course, some of this stuff, you know, for a long time, we just thought it was the Seijin Suzuki films, right? Yeah. But the thing about it is that there is this amazing, I'm finding new directors and stuff in Japan. Yeah. Uh, Eclipse, which is a Criterion imprint, is putting out these box sets of stuff. They're wonderful. And they're, it's amazing stuff. And it was around at the same time. Now, I have no idea what the distribution They had a box set of early Kobayashi films recently, which is well, tremendous. That's, oh, let's not go a whole different Japan. thing. So let's yeah, not yeah, go yeah. to the Japan thing, yeah. because I, I, we'll stay like focused. I say, this is a kick-up. But uh, this actually was critical, Okay. I believe that the reason the Japanese films were so, um, you know, invisible to Western audiences is they were not subtitled. They yeah. were not intended for uh, a foreign market. Now, Hong Kong has got 7 million people now. I mean, back then it had about, say, 5. Japan has always had 120 million people. Yeah. I mean, not only film markets, but things like consumer electronics, a lot of stuff is only intended for the domestic market because it's big enough you don't have to go overseas. Yeah. So therefore, they had no need to subtitle this stuff. You know, Nikatsu, Toei, the big studios, sure. they just would put the stuff out. Uh, whereas Hong Kong, they had, you know, they had to go to Singapore, Malaysia, Taiwan. Uh, a lot of the stuff was shot MOS. So sure. I hope your listeners know what that means. They without better. sound. Uh, so that because they would simply dub it into whatever, you know, you go to Thailand, and that's how Hong Kong became the de facto right. film capital of Asia, you know, ex Japan, right? Um, the, the films were dubbed into whatever the local dialect was, and they were subtitled in English and Chinese just by default. You know, yes, it was legally mandated, but you know, uh, how many people in the in, Whitehall in London really cared that Hong yeah. Kong films were subtitled in English. It was just kind of English as an official language of Hong Kong. It's, it was before the handover and it is today. So they subtitled it. So absolutely, Wade, you were correct. Um, so so we've, you know, the, the, the Shaws created this great brand. Uh, Run Run Shaw certainly seemed to have been the Jack Warner of that group. And, uh, you know, we, we get out of the 70s, and somewhere between the late 70s and about the mid-80s, we get into what is effectively the Hong Kong New Wave, which is where so many of us just got so excited. I mean, I, I remember when I discovered, you know, these new Hong Kong films that were different from the old Hong Kong films, it was like a, it was like a burst of lightning, and you couldn't tear me away from the Chinatown theaters here. Um, do we have kind of a fixed date? I mean, the, the French New Wave effectively begins with Breathless and The 400 Blows. We can, you know, we can, we can begin with those two films, but is there, is there a kind of a beginning point for in, in, with Hong Kong, or is it sort of a lot of things happening at once over a number of years? No, there is there's an inflection point. First of all, I have to give a shout-out to Run Me Shaw. Yes. Uh, Run Me was actually, he, I think he passed away in the late 60s, but he had a certain stamp. Okay, and mm -hmm. actually, I could talk about him and the three Japanese directors working for Shaw's and the Shaw's and Nikatsu co-productions of the late 60s, because now I'm, this is a new yeah. thing that I'm getting really excited about, but I just have to mention Run Me there, although, of course, Run Run was the guy uh, for most of it. But the inflection point was when Shaw's decided to do television, which would be about 85, 86. What happened is... Uh, you know, still, movies, of course, were really great. Now, people had television, and they could sit and watch stuff in Cantonese, the local dialect of Hong Kong, that was produced by the Shaw's factory and distributed, you know, free-to-air with commercials on, on TVB. 
uh, and available on videotape uh, overseas and wherever. Uh, but what that did is that freed up all of these other possibilities. Now, certainly Golden Harvest was in the driver's seat because they were always sort of number two. So you talk about 85, 86, you're looking at Jackie Chan, Samuel Hung, Yin Biu, Yin Hua, mm -hmm. all these guys, some of whom made films together, some of whom made things separately. Uh, Jackie, of course, became the most famous guy, but in many ways, I mean, Samo was literally the big brother. He was the older guy. Yin Hua is like the oldest guy. But yeah. Samo is the guy who did a lot of the action direction, the actual direction, and would star in the films. I mean, I think of 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 the Golden Harvest guys, I really want to give a shout-out to Samo for, for his contributions. And I think if you see his films today... Uh, They're great. They, they hold up. Absolutely. Uh, really. So, but the other thing is Troy Huck. Choi formed Film Workshop. Right. Uh, and the other guy is lesser known, but a guy named Carl Maka formed uh, uh, Three C's, a name escapes me right now, but uh, I don't know, look it up. It's, yeah, uh, I know, I can uh, see the logo. Yeah, I know, it's, I'm, I'm blanking because yeah. all I can see is the logo, but it's something... Uh, 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 something cinema, Chinese cinema something or something. Cinema Corporation. That's it. That, yeah, you one know, of those. We'll, we'll, we'll lose. There's a third C in there. But it, the fact is that these guys, all of a sudden, as independent operators, they were sort of in the driver's seat. Yeah. In other words, Troy Hark, in many ways, was seminal because he produced A Better Tomorrow. So he, you know, he Shaw's, started John Woo. He gave us John yeah, Woo. Exactly. So would Shaw's alumnus. So, so would 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 Zoo Warriors be uh, one of those one of those inflection point films? Kind I, I of a lot of people a, point to that. If, if you put it the inflection point at eighty five eighty six because Zoo was at eighty three, it was a Golden Harvest production. Uh, Zoo, which I love, I absolutely love Zoo. Yeah, uh, I think it was kind of a flyer. It yeah. was kind of like before Shaw's had put out their stuff, but realized that eighty three was also in Descent of the Sun. Holy Flame of the Martial World, right. Little Dragon Maidens, starring yeah. uh, Mary Jane Young and uh, Leslie Chung, Demon of the Loot with Wei Ying Hung. All these things are now available. They were always, you know, apocryphal. I mean, yeah. Films that I would try to see in any way, shape, or form, and you couldn't get it. Now you can get them on DVD, which mm. is wonderful. But there was this sort of supernatural fantasy thing. So Harvest, who at that time were certainly number two to Shaw's in the film arena, decided to do that kind of film. But if you look at Zoo, you've got Sammo Hung, you've yeah. got Corey Yoon Kwai, you've got Yin Bu, you've got, uh, you know, all this whole panoply of stars. Uh, and in a sense, yeah, that that film, certainly for me, was inspirational because I like the genre, but it, it predates what we would consider yeah. the new way by a couple of years. So Police Story is probably, then Then we're really getting to the meat of it. I kind of think, you know, really the, the floodgates just broke open. All of a sudden you had Troy Hark, he did Chinese Ghost Story in 87. And, and you, Police Story is a big deal because Police yeah. Story was at the New York Film Festival. I mean, it was it was the first time that a major American festival had given a slot to a film from the Hong Kong industry. So it, there was a legitimizing, kind of globalizing uh, moment with, with the first police story, I think. Well, at least let me ask well. you, what happened with that? I mean, because... Uh you know, uh, you mean what, what led to it, or...? No, I'm just, what happened? What was the outgrowth of this show? Because, you know, for me, uh, just tracking this stuff, uh, for me, the seminal things in terms of 
because there was no English coverage. I was living in San Francisco. My friends, my Chinese co-workers would say, you're crazy. Why, why do you want to see Charlie and Five? Go see Bruce Willis and yeah. Die Hard. I mean, you know, why do you want to see those films? Uh, but for me, uh, the 1988 film comment uh, yeah. thing, which is fairly legendary, with people like Paul Fonaroff, David Shute, Dave Kerr, were right. actually writing in English, and you were, oh my gosh. You know, I actually got a hold of Shute by calling directory assistance for 213. <laughs> I did. I said, give me the number for David Shute, and I called him up from San Francisco, and I said, excuse me, uh, I'm sorry if this is the wrong number, but are you the guy that wrote about Hong Kong films in Film Comment? And amazingly, yes. Yes. How did you get my number? Well, I just called directly. Well, so I, I bet Shute at the time, but 1990, the Toronto Film Festival, David Overby playing. I was going to say Overby is is yeah. is a really seminal figure here too, because in many respects, I mean, it it feels as though a parallel to if we go to the the, the French New Wave directors when they were writing for, uh, when they were all kind of beginning their their critical uh, careers writing for Cahiers de Cinema, and they're the ones that said, hey, Alfred Hitchcock and uh, Howard Hawks and these guys uh, are real directors, and it's you should pay attention to them and it was kind of I think it was some, somewhat similar that suddenly you had very serious uh, writers writing about something that other people had not taken seriously and it forced a reevaluation. so I, I think that's you true. mentioned that I remember something that I haven't thought about in years which is Cahiers de Cinema the, the French uh, magazine did a, did a story on Shaw Brothers yeah uh, you know long I, it might have even been the 1970s for all but you know again it was in French it's kind yeah. of like you know there, there seemed to be this Maybe it was partly due to the stereotype that it was all just sort of, you know, yeehaw, kung fu, black belt theater, kind of not mm -hmm. to be taken seriously, good fun at the drive-in type films. Uh, but I knew better simply because Karen had dragged me to the ribs and I, you know, I was seeing this stuff. I saw things like Brothers from the Walled City, which you can get on DVD now, uh, from Celestial, and it's a modern day, you know, social drama of these kids that grow up and, you know, the, and... There were other directors, even in the 70s, who were doing modern stuff about the, the problems of Hong Kong housing projects, you know, people to grow up, teenage, teenage delinquency, all this sort of stuff. Actually, a couple of people doing it in the 60s, but not for Shaw's. And then for Shaw's, yeah, you know, different genres and different, you know, a whole panoply of, of really interesting films, not just martial arts. You know, they did horror films, they did you know, erotica, they did drama, they did all of this stuff. But in a way, they were in a vacuum, even though they were subtitled, simply because cinemas in the West simply wouldn't play that stuff. And possibly it's because they figured it was all just kind of, you know, whatever. So so what, what with the new wave, once we get into the new wave period, that, because there was an energy there. I mean, there was, it was, it, it really was as though the stuff from the Shaw period had been taken to the next level. I mean, it was almost as if they wanted to take it to a more global level, as if they were aware of the fact that they had a bigger market than perhaps the Shaws even realized. Mm -hmm. fair, fair assessment, do you think? Well, the problem is, again, is uh, you know, distribution and exhibition. Most of these things were showing in Chinatowns in the West or, yeah. you know, Singapore, Malaysia, the Chinatowns of Southeast Asia. I mean, frankly, Bangkok Chinatown in the yeah. 70s was absolutely rocking, you know, in the 80s. People were showing up in... Uh, you know, packing into these uh, beautiful old cinemas, you know, and that's all gone now. It's fortunately we have the stuff on DVD and Blu-ray, which I'm very, very excited about because otherwise we wouldn't have it at all. The cinema 
culture that even in the 90s helped, helped to bring this along is, is now gone. The thing is that, you know, as I said, people thought I was nuts. You know, I, I was living in San Francisco. There were four theaters showing double features. And I would every week I would see anywhere from two to six Hong Kong films, depending mm. on what was going on. You know, I would just pay my money. They all just thought I was some crazy guy that wandered in. And you would just watch this stuff. They had no expectation that there would be a non-Asian audience for this. So no, they, they didn't pursue it. The, the one guy I think who is an exception to that is Troy Hark. Because with Chinese Ghost Story, he made a film that he kind of adapted. Mm-hmm. You know, it was and you know, it was talked about at the time. This is sort of adapted to Western tastes in a sense. But again, how many people saw it? Everybody I know that saw Chinese Ghost Story in the late eighties loved it. Yeah. But there were very few people that played it. Like the Roxy in San Francisco actually did Chinese Ghost Story and Chinese Ghost Story Two hmm. in uh, the early nineties, and, and that I think it was ninety one, and that was amazing. You know, but then sort, shortly after that, what happened is uh, uh, Sex and Zen. This, you know, yeah, actually high production quality, but very silly. Uh, you know, sort of I would call it a sex comedy. Well, all those Amy out. Yip films, uh, Robotrix is one of my favorites. Yeah, but the, Sex and Zen was the one that all of a sudden, you know, yeah. uh, Rim Films here was distributing it, and I believe it paid, played like twenty weeks at the Lemley. Yeah, sold out. It did. Uh, and it was great. Uh, the problem is that, you know, when you went to see another Hong Kong film, well, the same film was still playing, so yeah. it was difficult to sort of get people hip to the canon yeah. of Hong Kong film, but at the same time, that was a real breakthrough. I want to talk about Sex and Zen a little bit. Of course, my first book's called Sex and Zen and a Bolt, yeah. which, which is just two Hong Kong film titles yeah. crashed together. Second one has two words, because I guarantee if you write a book with ten words in the title, your second book will have two. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the film Sex and Zen, of course, starring Amy Yip, and uh, uh, various other, Kent Chang is in it, you know. Is, uh, but, you know, they didn't really take that stuff seriously. Now, I went, Mike Wilkins and I uh, went to see a first run in China. Mm-hmm. And we were like, wow, cool. And, of course, we knew who Amy Yip was, and... and what impressed us at that time was that this was act the production values were actually better on this particular film, and I don't know why, because these films were not really respected by the filmmakers. They were yeah. sort of these silly things. They don't pay scriptwriters. This was taken from a 17th century Chinese thing called it translates as Tears, Tales of the Carnal Prayer Mat or something like that. <laughs> and, but you know they they weren't taken seriously. They were simply films they made. They were 90 minutes. And, you know, they would make money uh, in the cinema, and then that was it. But, for you know, once it started being shown around the country, people would go, and I think because it's so outrageous, the fact that, A, there was Chinese people doing this, and, B, it's a period piece. It's a Ming Dynasty piece, so everyone's wearing costumes, and it's, you know, removed. If you did this, the same film in a modern setting with non-Asian actors, people would just be horrified. But because there was this layer of removal, hmm. I think people could really enjoy, they, you know, you take a date and just yeah. have a good time. And it played six weeks sold out at the Roxy in San Francisco. Wow. It was this, you know, there's all these clips, you know, from different, because it went around the country. And if nothing else, this particular film proved there was more to Hong Kong film yeah. than just martial arts. 
if you knew about John Woo and people started to get hip to him about that same time, yeah, then the gangster thing, the gun yeah, thing. I, yeah. I think really that particular film, and also I have to give a shot to Naked Killer, the yeah directed by uh, Clarence Ford. Uh, that's that's his English name, mm-hmm. or Clarence Falk uh, is is his Chinese name. Uh, he uh, he based that actually on a Shaw Brothers film from '72 called I Knew, which is a beautiful film. Uh, but it's sort of his homage to an early Shaw film, and that's one thing that I th- I think some of your listeners won't really understand is that many of these films are just remade every twenty years. You know, like yeah. if you see Jet Li in Kung Fu Cult Master, right, nineteen eighty three, yeah. it's basically Holy Flame of the Martial World. Sure, right. It's it's you know it's there's so many epic poems, The Water Margin, Journey to the West, and yeah. Monkey King, and things like that. They're simply they're remade, and that's partly why Chinese audiences aren't you know they don't have I would say they don't have the same reverence for these types of films. So so. so Oh yeah, I saw that when I was a kid. You know, it's like yeah. well, the new kids can can see this right. version, right? Starring the the latest stars, latest stars and starless and whatever. But Naked Killer was a big hit because nobody had really seen that kind of stuff before. That was a Wang Jing yeah. uh, production, uh, Simon Yam. But again, I saw it at the Roxy. They were putting on extra shows, putting on midnight shows, sold out. People just howling, you know. Uh, uh, naked. Ki- the, the the opening sequence of that thing is just mind-boggling. It's but, dazzling. Uh, Wong Jing, who I said I wouldn't talk about. But yeah. <laughs> he he's known for doing you know these amazing over-the-top stuff. Uh, over-the-top opening sequences in the rest of the film is yeah. you know, like whatever. But naked Killer, yeah, you know, uh, interesting film, and you know, of course it was funny, but it was also the kind of film that Hollywood would not make. You know, they, they wouldn't See, make something. Now, now that Not gets that. now that gets to to a crux of a thing that I want to talk about because one thing about the Hong Kong New Wave, if we talk about the French New Wave, well, it was defined because they wanted to get rid of the cinema of quality in quotes, right? We want to do films with small budgets, non-location, and gritty and real, and get in touch with the people. And Italian neorealism had us had certain uh, hallmarks. Hong Kong New Wave is is a, a huge diverse chunk of cinema. I mean, there's everything in there. There's comedy, there's martial arts, there's gunplay, there's period films, there's comedy, there's erotica. And if you have to say, well, how do you define the Hong Kong New Wave? What defined it as the Hong Kong New Wave? The only thing I've ever come up with has been exactly what you just said, which is they did the stuff that Hollywood wouldn't dare in all these different areas. It's like right where Hollywood drew the line and said we can't really go past that. That would be too violent, too unrealistic, too far, too much, too erotic. There were no boundaries. And it was that, it, would, you, would you, I mean, is that how you would read it? Yeah, you I, it? absolutely. I think you're right. I, you know, but again, uh, going back, you know, pre-New Wave, going back to the Shaws and even Cathay and stuff like that, there's certain, uh, you know, Chinese film traditions, I would say, that really were, were completely verboten yeah. in the West. Let me give you an example. Uh, two of the real big stars in the 60s were Josephine Xiao, who went on to make yeah. films. Uh, and, Legend uh, of Fang Sai-yuk, right, Fang Sai-yuk's right. mom. Yep, exactly. She won, yeah. she won Best Actress at the uh, Berlin Film Festival for... Uh, for uh, yeah, Who uh, Do Men, was that it? Yes, the, yeah. the, the wonderful, which... Uh, the, the something. Oh, I'm losing track of the title now, but it was uh, where she plays the mother of... Uh, Right. Her, her her father-in-law has Alzheimer's, and yeah. um, be- uh, beautiful film. Yeah. Anyway, the the thing is that she was a, a star. Okay? Yeah. So, 
you know, again, you have to picture 1960s Hong Kong, we think of it now as like this beautiful skyline and international financial center, which of course it is. But in the 60s, it was a third world country, right? Mm -hmm. Josephine Xiao, and you're going to be shocked when I say this, but, you know, I was shocked when in 1988 I found out Cherry Chung, mm -hmm. who seemed to star in every other film with Chow Yun Fat. I mean, again, I was going, seeing two to six of these films a week, right? Uh, she made ten feature films. These are starring roles in 1988. Hmm. I mean, the pace of it, okay? Josephine Xiao, Xiao Fong Fung, to use her Chinese name, in 1969, starring roles, made 30 feature films. It's almost unbelievable that's 30. impossible. I know. In 52, like, 30 films in 52 weeks. Yes. I mean, it's and it's just like kind of, okay, you don't, you know, you want to sleep? Okay, go wash dishes for, you know, 25 cents an hour. Get out of here. We'll find somebody else. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, the studios were so powerful at, at that particular time. I mean, of course, Josephine had her fans and whatever, but, you know, she didn't really have that much of a child in when you're working that much. But this other, Chen Puchu, Chen Pu mm -hmm. who's the English name Connie, uh, was, you know, the other real favorite. So they put them together in these films, and they're doing so many of these films that often one or the other would simply play a male role. Yeah. And, then, you know, think about how in the 1960s, would you see, like, two starlets who are real popular and uh, one of them plays a male role, like, dresses as a man, yeah. you know? Uh, and, and some of these were, like, James Bond ripoffs and, you yeah. know, the... Black Rose and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's really fascinating things. But that was one taboo. Now, another one, uh, getting a little further back in, when I started going, I realized that, yeah, there's a different set of ethics here, the things you would never see in, uh, I guess I probably shouldn't get too specific about certain things, but, you know, if you've seen, say, Naked Killer or whatever, yeah. certainly Sex and Zen, you understand that these people are not playing by the same rule book. Uh, and so, yes, I think that, yeah, there were things that were unique about Hong Kong films. Now, the, the one of the things that, that uh, has sort of been talked about a lot just in the, in the past few years is that the, the new wave period really seemed to come to an almost abrupt end. And uh, I think we saw, even when I last saw you in, in 97 at the time of the handover, it, it, it was kind of in the air. There was this sense, well, Jackie and Jet and John uh, and Ringo at the time, they're all on their way to Hollywood. There's this talent drain. And I think there was a sense that once Hong Kong becomes part of China, that that's going to change the equation as well. And in fact, it did. And um, piracy, I think, was a problem already at the time. That was, uh, you know, I remember you were telling me even then, is like, why would people, why do people even go to the theaters anymore? They can buy the pirated stuff off the street for pennies. And so I think all these factors really combined to sort of hurt the industry. And now there's kind of this weird new renaissance that's all, everyone moved to the mainland. There's all this mainland money pouring in. And we've seen the Yip Man films here, and Donnie Yen suddenly has, the, has a renaissance in his career, you know, at, at an age when, you know, he's the same age as Jet Li, for crying out loud. Yeah. I mean, so talk a little bit about where we are now. I mean, is this, is it, are we seeing, are we seeing another new wave? Is it the Hong Kong new wave mainland style? What's what's what? What are we reading right now? Well, there's two parts to this. The first is, you know, what what happened? Why why did this, you know, amazing engine of, of, uh, you know, creativity that, you know, started with Shaw's, and then when Shaw's sort of let the cork out of the bottle, all of a sudden exploded. You had Troy Hark, 
this was an extremely talented filmmaker. You had John Woo, you had Jackie Chan, Samuel Hung, all these people. Where did all this energy go? Uh, and the answer is, you, you, there's several factors. Uh, it happened as sort of, as you pointed out, coincide with the handover. Whoever, everyone thought that you know Hong Kong was doomed and all of all of that stuff, which nowadays, of course, is mildly amusing, especially <laughs> for people like me who've lived there, you know, for almost 20 years, uh, certainly since before the handover. Um, uh, a couple things happened. One thing that happened is financing started to dry up. Financing from other sources. John Woo has famously said that he, if he wanted to make a film, he would simply go to his financiers and say, got a film, it's an action film, I've got Chai and Fad, they go, yeah, you know, budget, go ahead, here's the budget. Yeah, and, and really, yeah. it was like that. And Ring of Lamb pretty much operated under the same principles. You know, it's like, okay, I got a film, especially after 87 when he won Best uh, best Picture and Best Director and Chai and Fad won Best Actor for yeah. City on Fire, which I think is an amazing film. You can get it on Blu-ray now. And uh, One of the principal inspirations for uh, Reservoir Dogs. Uh, yeah, I mean, along with other films. Yeah. But, you know, definitely, uh, people, at that time, people like Tarantino were, were seeing, yeah. you know, Hong Kong film. We know that, and other Hollywood directors, were, you know, we could see in their work, yeah. which was which was interesting, because, of course, I you know, I love Hollywood films, and, you know, uh, I love films, right? So the financing started to dry up. Mm-hmm. Okay, the second thing is that Hollywood, as we talked about before, we know some of these people started to um, uh, Hollywood directors started to to look at Hong Kong mm-hmm. films and draw inspiration from them, which, which was fairly amazing. Um, but as you pointed out, the talent started, you know, talent started to go, and it, it's very ironic from a Hong Kong point of view because after the Basic Law was signed and they decreed it would be handed over as a special autonomous region of China, uh, you know, with separate passports, currency, yeah. border controls, all that. I mean, it is very separate from the rest of China, in case anyone's wondering, okay? Yeah. Hong Kong has a different set of laws um, to this day. But what happened is the directors, and especially the action directors, like Corey Yoon, Kwok Choi, who you mm-hmm. may remember from Hard Boiled and uh, Tomorrow, yeah. Tomorrow Never Dies, the Bond film, uh, and many of these other guys went to Hollywood. Uh, and the reason is that they made much greater salaries for much less work. I mean, the first guy, of course, was John Woo with Hard Target, John claude yeah. Van Damme in 93, but then when he made Broken Arrow in 96, that was a hit. That time, Jackie Chan made Rumble in the Bronx. It was shot in Vancouver, but it was a Western-style film. Yeah, you know that could be easily ported over, and that was playing in mall plexes. Of course, this helped to sell my first book quite a bit. Yeah, when it came out in '96. But the point is that the brain drain that was posited for Hong Kong pre-handover, in terms of you know bankers, accountants, mm-hmm. you know intellectuals, and talented people. Uh, going to migrate into Canada. Well, they went to Canada and sort of got bored and came back, right? Right. So Hong Kong continues as an entity, but unfortunately the brain drain in the film industry was real. Yeah. You take Ringo Lamb, John Woo, a bunch of action directors, even Michelle Yeoh was over, over here trying to make it big, and you know, you're sort of creaming off the top layer of the people. Yeah. Not only would be making films, but would be helping to nurture the next generation of filmmakers and stars 
Okay. Uh, so that that's kind of what happened. It happened to coincide with the time of the handover. The big thing in terms of Asian film, and this is of course not a Hong Kong film, but Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Right. That was the one. I mean, I do not need to explain yeah. this film to anyone. Uh, it was directed by Ang Lee, who's Taiwanese, a star Chayan Fat, born on Lama Island, total Hong Konger, mm-hmm. saying you know, saying Yi, who's uh, mainlander. Uh, Michelle Yeoh, who's Malaysian. I mean, it was this pan and but of course, the, was famous in the Hong Kong industry. Um, it was this pan-Asian thing that all of a sudden, really, I think after Crouching Tiger, was kind of all bets were off. Uh, but at that time, people like myself, I, I was living in Hong Kong, very much involved in the film industry as a writer and you know meeting meeting people mm-hmm. and myself and. Other writers and people in the industry were very, very vocal about two things that we felt were essential to help keep Hong Kong film, you know, going in the direction that it had been mm-hmm. really ever since the Shaws. It's sort of like a straight line uh, with maybe a detour for the talent going off to Hollywood. But the things were script writing. Mm-hmm. Develop scripts, you know, don't simply take a script from a Chinese epic poem and expect it to <laughs> play, yeah. right? Mm. You know, which, I mean, that's nice, but, you know, let's, let's do something more. Respect the screenwriters, right? Yeah. And the other thing was to develop new talent. Yeah. It, there was, a, they developed a sort of thing, and if, if you study the history, it's, it's, based, it's very basic. It's simply doing what you've always done, which is starring the same people again and again. Yeah. Because they're popular, you know, the gossip bags can write about them and stuff. But we were sort of down to like about four leading men yeah. by that time. And everyone was saying, look, you have to bring people in. However, about that time, the beginning of the 21st century, China, of course, started to rise as a world power, which it continues to. And although piracy, which was another factor in, uh, you know, financing Hollywood brain drain and piracy, especially in terms of VCDs, yeah. uh, you know, which were everywhere when I was living in... I, I still have a bunch of mine. Yeah, I, yeah. well, you know, it's an uh, empty storefront. There's some movies I have on VCD I still can't get on DVD. Yeah, well, that's yeah. same here. Yeah. You know, although actually you can still buy... Uh, you know, the Shaw <laughs> Brothers stuff is only issued on VCD, Amazing. which is really unfortunate. There's one film, uh, I'm not going to mention, but uh, we, we've all been uh, trying to trying to get uh, Celestial to put it out on yeah. DVD, but it, it's only on VCD. Anyway, um, the, the point is that China became very attractive. Yeah. You know, the financing was there. Yeah. Okay? The talent basically, uh, and you can, you can use the Crouching Tiger template of Pan-Asian stars. Yeah. Come up. Uh, you could make, say, a big epic, and you could put in Chagan Fat, you could put in Gong Li, you could put in Jay Chu, who's Taiwanese, all the popular people, and they could do a big epic battle thing or whatever. There is a problem with China, which is that you can't, you know, Johnny Toe can't do, uh, in, well, Andrew Lott did Infernal Affairs, which yeah. I think is an amazing film. Which, you know, we should point out in, went on to be remade here as The Departed and won Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Yeah, I mean, Scorsese, who they sort of, yeah. you know, taxi driver know, you know, Goodfellas know, he redoes a Hong Kong film and gets awards. I mean, the irony of that is, is inescapable. Yeah. But actually, 
since you mentioned Infernal Affairs, and uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's very good as an analogy for what happened in the beginning of the 21st century and to where we are now, which is that Infernal Affairs is a Hong Kong film directed by Andrew Lau. I think it's an excellent film. I think, you know, sorry, Marty, I, I think Scorsese's a genius, but Infernal, Infernal Affairs, yeah, it is, and so many people have said that. I'm sorry. The Hong, if, if you think yeah. that The Parted is a good film, Get a hold of Infernal Affairs. Watch the whole trilogy. And, well, yeah, but... <laughs> Especially the first one, the, yeah. The first one, you know, starring, uh, you know, uh, Andy Lau and uh, Tony Lung Chu Wai's, uh, uh, you know, Cop and Crook, respectively. I'm not going to tell you which one is which. Mm-hmm. You can watch the film and figure it out for yourself. But the thing is that Infernal Affairs, if you buy this special edition DVD, it has, oh, the alternate ending. Now... Alternate endings are a big thing on DVDs. Yeah. Right? You always want to see, like, well, what, you know, what did it used to be? What what was it changed right, from, or what it might have been? Yeah. yeah, what it might have been, and, and you know, what was the process? And sometimes the director will explain, like, why they decided to end the film this way. Uh, unfortunately, with Infernal Affairs, if you watch the alternate ending, it's the mainland ending. Hmm. And in mainland China, you know, supernatural films are not well liked. Okay. Interesting. Oh, it's very interesting. Let me just give you, um, as far as I know, Babe is still banned on the mainland. Really? Babe. The cute little talking pig. Pigs don't talk. That's supernatural. Banned. Okay. No kidding. Yeah. So, criminals cannot be successful. In fact, a 1987 film, fantastic Hong Kong film, uh, directed by a comic director, it's against type, called On the Run with uh, Yin Biu and Patricia Ha. Uh, it's an amazing, it's like this mm. really spare little film noir thing. Um, they had to change the ending. If you buy the DVD, it's like the mainland ending is on there. And basically, for the mainland, criminals can't emerge victorious. Interesting. So, if you watch Infernal Affairs, it has a different ending. The alternate ending actually, you know, this is my opinion as a film fan, is far inferior to the way that the Hong Kong version, but the Hong Kong version can't play on the mainland. So if you extrapolate that, you have a situation where doing a noble battle scene and everybody's done it, Donnie Yen, you know, Kelly Chen, Chai Fat, as I said before, Jackie Chan even made one mm-hmm. of the myth, you know, I used to call them the headgear movies because you yeah. the subway in Hong Kong and they'd always have these guys wearing the headgear and looking yeah. really serious and uh, you know, you can do these things and, and they're fine. But if you try to do, like, any of the things that, for me, were some of the, the real jewels of Hong Kong cinema, you know, uh, Johnny Toe's, you know, neo-film noir, or uh, you know, anything where you have, you know, when you have cops and criminals, yeah, uh, there's gray areas. And mainland censorship does not like gray areas. So, yes, the China market is, is good. I think in many ways they're starting to really you know, produce more interesting films. There's more latitude. I think China's in general, the population is maturing. Um, and I think it's an interesting market. And they're actually quite successful in the face of continuing piracy, which is remarkable. And, you know, we, we have about a minute left here. But, but I, I think the thing that I find most interesting is that 
the rise of all of these new films, the sort of the resurrection of the of the Hong Kong style film uh, on the mainland, which coincides with mainland directors like Zhang Yimou embracing the form as well, also seems to coincide with Hollywood grabbing more and more and more of the Chinese market and investing heavily in building theaters and building facilities in China. It almost just seems as though everyone is in, in a race now that, that the rise of China has not just resurrected um, Hong Kong's industry, but it's changed Hollywood's. Well, I thought we had an hour left, Wade. Uh, <laughs> I, I know, I know. Right, well, with a minute, there's a couple things. First of all, in a minute, we can't possibly cover yeah. Hollywood going into China. But I mean, my, I guess my question here would be: Are you optimistic for what? Because a lot of people bemoan what what the the, the Chinese market has done to American films, but has it reinvigorated Chinese films? I guess that's my last question. Uh, or does it, or is it yet to see, yet to be seen? I, I think yeah, the jury's still out on that. Um, I, I, you know, to me, I think. There's never really been a better time to be a Hong Kong film fan. Yeah. Even though the cinema, the experience of going to the cinema and meeting people, you know, that real richness of meeting these these wonderful fans from the '90s, which, you know, I mean, the guys at the UC Theater in Berkeley were, were so amazing, they're so interesting, and they do websites and they do all kinds of stuff, uh, and they were just such ardent fans. It was, there was so much fun. Now we have a greater choice than ever. In other words, you can watch films from the 80s, from the 90s, from the 70s, even from the 60s on DVD, increasingly they're coming out on Blu-ray, and you can have that home experience. If, you know, you can invite your friends over and have your own little cinema if you if you want. So yeah, sadly the cinema th- thing has, has really changed. Uh, but I don't think there's ever been a better time to be a Hong Kong fan. You have the, the entire panoply at your fingertips. Uh, and that's great. It is great, and a lot of those Shaw films are out here. We should point out a lot of them uh, were released by uh, by uh, Weinstein's, yep. and a lot of it is available from Funimation, normally mm-hmm. an, an anime house. They've got a bunch of Shaw films, and um, yeah, you can absolutely see it's it's increasingly on Blu-ray as well. And and mm-hmm. Wellgo has been really a wellspring of all of the, the new stuff. So Wellgo's it's, really interesting. I mean, you just. And introduced me to them recently. I'm quite interested in yeah. what they're doing and, in terms of Asian film and Magnolia as well through their uh, through yeah. their uh, magnet lines so. and Dragon Dynasty. Uh, yeah, I guess that's the one yeah. scenes. But yeah. yeah, you're seeing these films with audio commentary. I mean, you've done some. Andy yeah. Klein has done some. People, David Shute has done some. People yeah. that I I've known for 20 years who are real experts on these films are doing audio commentaries in English and adding to the experience. So. Yes, we're on optical disc. We're on optical disc now. It's not the cinema experience that it used to be, but yet, it, you know, it, it is still rich. And the beauty of it, and we've always said, we said this in the, the first, the introduction of the first book, Hong Kong films provide conversion experiences. Mm-hmm. And you could still do that today. You get a hold of, you know, your favorite, whatever it is, supernatural, martial arts, or, you know, John Woo's Better Tomorrow, Ring of Lambs, Full Contact, City on Fire, whatever it is, Get it on Blu-ray. Get your big 60-inch TV and your, you know, whopping sound system. Invite somebody over. Turn up. Say, hey, you want to see something? And just watch them sit on the couch and just go, oh man, you know, because yeah. they will. At the end of it, they'll. And this has happened to me. People have grabbed me and said, how long has this been going on? <laughs> you know, because uh, Hong Kong films are simply, you know, like I say, it's the combination of what you know and a culture that is really foreign that provides this amazing perspective. 
And people sometimes ask me how many Hong Kong films have you seen. All I can say is, you know, four figures, certainly over a thousand. Uh, but yeah. in Hong Kong, we've got the Hong Kong Film Archive. You can go do research there. They do publications. Did a Shaw Brothers book. Did a Chang Che book. Uh, you know, private people are, are putting out more Brilliant. Uh, Hong Kong books. And there's the Hong Kong Film Festival still going on. Uh, you know, it, it's like I said, I don't think there's ever been a better time to really be a Hong Kong film fan. So Perfect. Stefan, thank you. Stefan Hammond, Hong Kong film historian and scholar, and the books, uh, Sex and Zen and a Bullet in the Head and uh, Hollywood East, both still available? Uh, well, I'll tell you, they're both out of print, but I'm here in L.A. Part yeah. of the reason is I'm investigating putting them online, selling them as e-books. Oh, good. And you heard it here first. Uh, keep on, you know. All right. Check well, Amazon if... If you want to see the books and you know possibly pick up an out-of-print copy, just search Stephen Hammond, my name on Amazon. I've got an author page. Well, we'll and we'll uh, we'll be sure. And uh, as soon as those are available again, we'll definitely let the listeners know. Sure. Stephen, thanks. It has Thank been you. a pleasure. Yeah, always a pleasure, Wade. Thank you for having me. You got it. Yeah.